You're listening to World Oil's Deep Dive, where you'll get to know the authors of technical articles in World Oil magazine and learn more about their company's technology and how it's shaping our industry. Now, here's your host, Jim Watkins. Welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited for this episode because we're actually going to the first ever oil field electrification technology conference in Houston. So there's never been a show like this before, at least not that we know of. <laughs> so we're going to go there. We're going to talk with you know the exhibitors, the people delivering papers, the attendees to find out how the conference is and learn, you know, a little bit about what they're talking about and what they're doing. So hopefully when this rolls around next year, if you're in that world of oil field electrification, you'll attend this conference. So let's jump into some interviews. All right. I'm here with the fantastic crew from GD Energy Products. We have Matt Nunez and Jensen Kerr, who you will know from how many, what episode is this that you've been on? I mean, you're on every episode when I see you. This is number four. Number four. Wow. So you could say I'm a pro. Yeah, you are, man. <laughs> you are. I think you are the guest that appears the most on this show. Mm -hmm. I really do. Hey, I love it. And we love world, and GD loves world oil. <laughs> I love, I love that. And today we're live at our oil field electrification technology conference, right? So this is the first year we've done this. And I don't know, turned out pretty good. Interesting presentations. What do you guys think? For a first year, I'd say it's looking positive. Obviously, yeah. the more we go green, the more that the world turns to being more efficient with electricity and using motors and being more green, so to speak. Right. It's going to get bigger and better. Right. So there's a lot of room to grow here, but I think I would say this is a very successful day one with room to improve next year and the year after. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I only think it's going to grow. I mean, we're really, you know, I was talking with a lot of guys and one guy said it best. He goes like, look, man, we're like in the first inning of this EFRAC thing, right? And the whole oil field electrification. So the fact that this is the very first conference, I mean, that's been dedicated to it. I think that says something. I think it'll grow in the future. So, Jensen, tell us, I mean, for people who haven't listened to every other episode and haven't heard you, what is it you do for GD? So, I sell pumps. I sell positive displacement pumps, and specifically, I handle our well service sector. So, we have frack, drilling, and well service. I sell our smaller horsepower pumps. They don't trust me yet to cut my teeth on the big frack <laughs> pumps. And Someday you'll get that 5000 man. Someday <laughs> you'll be able to sell that. So here in a second, you're going to hear from my colleague, Matt, and he's on the forefront of innovation as far as we're as where we're going on the EFRAC side, and so I'm excited for him to talk and tell you a little bit more about how we're being innovative and how GD is on the forefront of pump innovation. Absolutely, Matt. And so that's your bailiwick. You're Mr. 5000. You can call me Mr. Big Pump, Jim. <laughs> so what is it you do? What's your official title aside from Mr. Big Pump? That's what we're going to call you from now on, Mr. Yeah, Big Pump. Mr. Big Pump. No, it's, I'm an area sales manager at GD based out here in Houston and corporate. And pretty much I'm overselling, you know, from the pump division on the larger pump scale. Okay. That's used for frack side. You know, Jensen handles a lot on the cement coal tubing side. I'm more on the frack side. Right, 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 right. So it's interesting because, I mean, the 25s are still the standard, right? I mean, that's the deal, right? Yeah, for frack, I would say 2,500 horsepower pumps are definitely the standard in today's market. We see people branching out to 3,000, 5,000 horsepower. The problem is with our 5,000 horsepower pump or any 5,000 horsepower pump in today's market is that your limitation is the driver. 
right. what is driving that pump, right? In today's world, you know, there's some 3,000 horsepower motors out there, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of 5,000, if any at all. And so that's where our 5,000 really shines on the EFRAC application is there are 5,000 horsepower EFRAC motors out there, right? Right. That are driving that pump to its full capabilities. And from a TCO perspective or a total cost of ownership perspective, being able to put the full driver into that pump, understanding what its capabilities are, you're not really going to see those benefits unless you're really able to do that. Right. Were you in that presentation? I was watching one presentation. I forget which company it was from. But they were talking about the difference between twenty five and five thousand, and the capacity, pump capacity, and you know. No, I was talk- not. Oh, yeah. okay. That was an interesting presentation. I'll have to figure out who that was. It was very interesting because they were talking about how you just get, and because you're a five thousand pump, right? Yep. It's got a longer stroke than normal. It's not an eight; it's eleven or something, right? That is correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get, I mean the wear and tear on replaceables is much less on the five, right? Yeah, so you look at it from a cycle perspective, right? Right, cycles, yeah, exactly. If you're running a pump that's 11-inch stroke compared to an 8-inch stroke, your cycles are less. You're able to push more volume. You're able to control pressure better. But ultimately, and also what comes down to that is whatever your driver is, you're going to burn more fuel or less fuel on the back end. And what that means is if you're running a driver that's driving the full potential of that pump, you're going to see a lot of savings, not only on the consumables aspect because there's less cycles on those consumables, but you're also going to see increased volume. And when you kind of pair those things up from a TCO perspective, it's very valuable. But looking into the CFRAC application, the caveat is running a driver that doesn't meet that pump's horsepower capabilities, you're going to burn more fuel trying to get that pump turning. Right. Right. So that's one of the primary things we're seeing in today's market. And that's why we see our 5,000 pump getting a lot of headwinds with our headway, so to speak, with running EFRAC applications. Right. Well, and this is one of the things I was talking with somebody else earlier. And we were talking about how, you know, the thing that makes like these direct drives, and that's kind of a deviation from our electrification talk here. But the thing that makes those direct drives possible is now you got 5,000 horsepower turbine. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. And you can hook that up to a 5,000 horsepower pump. You don't have to step it down. You got a, a whole bunch of more interesting possibilities in there, right? Aside right. from just the electrical side. But I mean, that is the future, right? I mean, do you see, I mean, what, what's the uptake what, what, in the marketplace? How many people would you say are switching to fives? What's the percent for your guys' market share of the 5,000s versus the 25s? That's a tough question, Jim. I think there is a percentage out there, but it's as of today, it's a small percentage, right? Yeah, so like 10% or less? I'd say 5 to 10%. Yeah. And the yeah. reason being isn't because they're not interested in the 5,000 horsepower pump. Really, it's just supply chain restraints, understanding the EFRAC market. People are still trying to understand the efficiency side of EFRAC. Right. right. Not to mention there are a lot of costs associated with going EFRAC, but with fuel levels going, or fuel prices going up, it's starting to level itself out to where EFRAC could be, you know, from a total cost of ownership perspective, cheaper to operate. Absolutely. Right? And that's what they care about, right? That's that what they care that's about. That's the bottom line, right? That's the bottom line. Yeah, exactly. And so we're seeing a lot more movement there. There's a couple of vendors here today at the show that specialize in motors. And they even said today that there are some restraints on getting some of those motors, motors out there. So for those companies that do want to grow 
more into the EFRAT market, they do have restraints, not just from a pump perspective, but a driver perspective that's going right. to help them complete that full unit. Right, right, because you need all of those things, right? You got to have the you got to have the power gen, you got to have the motor, you got to have the pump, right? Absolutely. So, but you guys are well poised to take advantage of that upgrade where surely everybody's going. You guys are already there, right? Oh, absolutely. We're planning. We have pumps available today. We try to. We made some heavy bets at the early in the year. Um, hoping to take some market share, and we're ready to take on the challenge. So that's awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for coming, being sponsors of the event, coming to the event. It's, it's fantastic. Great having you on the show, Matt. You as well, Jim. Thank and you. And Jensen, so great seeing you again for the fourth time, man. Thank we're we're going to keep track of this. You're going to be like a marker for us, okay? Thank you, sir. Take care. Take care. Hey, everybody, let me interrupt the show just for a second. I want to tell you about a fun event coming up on February 28th here in Houston. It's our annual Charity Invitational Golf Tournament. It's going to be February 28th. Shotgun start at 10 a.m. And so if you want to get involved with this, and it's really good because we're raising money for charities that support oil and gas scholarships, right? So helping the kids make their way through petroleum engineering programs to come into our industry, definitely a worthy cause. And it's golf at Memorial. I don't know how often you play Memorial. That's my local course. I'm right here. It's fantastic since they redesigned it, you know, so definitely worth coming out to see. So once again, Charity Invitational Golf Tournament 2023. That's on February 28th, 2023 at Memorial Park. If you want to register, sign up your team. I mean, there's sponsorship possibilities. There's a lot of ways to get involved with this. Just go to golfenergyinfo, all one word, dot com, slash pages, slash golf, dash invitational. And there you'll be able to register. Or if that's too much of a hassle, you can just email Sarah Wilkins at gulfenergyinfo.com. That's Sarah, S-A-R-A dot Wilkins, W-I-L-K-I-N-S at gulfenergyinfo, all one word, dot com. And when you come out, you'll see me there because I'm definitely going to be there. So it's a great time. Oh, yeah, I didn't even tell you about some of the fun things, you know, like they have a, you know, a driver, a professional long drive guy who you can donate money and then have him hit your ball and man these these guys are just crazy there was one hole you know where they have one of those cool air compressor guns to shoot your ball toward the green i mean there's just a lot a lot of fun things to do that day and hey it's for the kids so why not but now let's get back to the show now we're here with the team from life cycle power Hi. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so we have Noel Combs and Jeff Bland. So, guys, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Noel, what do you do? What do you do for Lifecycle? Yeah, I'm in business development for Lifecycle Power. My background's oil and gas, and I came over here to do business development for Lifecycle for both EFRAC and utility for power generation. Nice, nice. And Jeff, what's your role? I'm the director of engineering project delivery. I've got about 15 years in power generation, product development, sales. So, mm. yeah, I've worked for Lifecycle for less than a year now. <laughs> but I have, I've That's actually, true. I've a got minute. a kind of unique perspective, I would say, for this type of conference because I came from the reset world. I used to work for Greco for 15 years. and sold, For 15 years? Yeah, you were the Greco. 15 years. Wow. And, I mean, I, I worked and sold and developed projects all over the world, anywhere from, you know, a couple of hundred KW all the way up to, you know, couple of hundred megawatts right. so 
So I actually came over to the turbine side, and now, you know, we'll, we'll tell you a little bit about Life yeah, cycle, tell us about yeah. life cycle. Tell us yeah. about life cycle. It's, it's a good dynamic between him and I because I come from the oil and gas background, and he did everything power generation, and he has a lot of utility experience too that he's going to bring to the table for life cycle power. But ultimately, what we do is power generation. We're, we're more on the large scale side. So our smallest unit is three and a half megawatts. Our largest unit is 34 and a half megawatt, 34 and a half megawatt units. Wow. And yes. Big power, and most of it's on a single trailer design. So, you know, rapidly deployable for whether it's, we don't discriminate, EFRAC, utility, emergency response, microgrid solutions for data centers, Bitcoin mining, anything. Right, right, right. So it's more than just the turbines, okay. right? It's the whole thing. It's Correct. the whole we're turnkey, microgrid thing. We're turnkey service. So from our motto, typically, historically, has been from pipeline to highline. We deliver everything nice. in between. And essentially to dissect that, what that means is, you know, on the front end, if we need to procure and manage compression, liquid knockouts on the backside, step up, step down transformers, we can do all of that. So the customer, really, if you go back to what was it, George Foreman days, or am I thinking of something else uh, that said it and forget it, really, right, yeah. you know, we can manage all of it. And one turnkey service, our guys are out there every day, and they're rock stars. And so with you guys, it's a leasing or a rental situation, or do you manage yeah. it for somebody who buys it? How does that work? Well, we can kind of do a little bit of both, to be honest, Jim. For the most part, our business model is to lease, okay? Right. And for our customers, what that helps them with is avoidance of CapEx. Right. We have a lot of fleet. We have over a gigawatt of equipment in fleets. So with that, it comes a huge amount of scale. We can do a lot of jobs and... You know, at any one time, if someone phones us and says, hey, I need 5, 10, 15 megawatts, we can turn that around in a day. And the great thing about these units is, first of all, you can run them on either diesel or natural gas. Mm -hmm. Second of all, as Noel mentioned, they're very mobile. You can install them in a couple hours. You know, nice. Yep. The, the 5 megs are 4 to 6 hours to install. It's a huge benefit, you know, for a lot of our customers. Oh, absolutely. They love yeah. those aspects. Yeah. And we were talking earlier, you guys don't, you guys are pretty much turbine brand agnostic, right? I mean, you Correct. guys run a lot of different equipment. So if an operator has a preference, mm -hmm. then you can supply that to them too, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, you're not stuck with one brand or another. Yeah, you're not stuck with one brand or another. We look into dual fuel for a reason because we work in multiple types of industries. For example, utility, they prefer diesel at least initially up front, right? Because it's right. simpler to come by. It's more abundant in a natural disaster scenario, whereas the oil field obviously prefers natural gas. They can use right. their own field gas straight out of the ground. So we're very versatile in that. And even if the operator in oil and gas prefers a larger unit, you know, and we've got, you know, we're high demand. We're the leaders in the EFRAC market right now. We have so many different variations of turbines from 5.7, 16.5 megawatt, 34.5 megawatt units right. that we can swap out and do interim solutions. We can partner the 34.5 megawatt with the 5.7 megawatt unit and they can load share. And so this is the beauty of Lifecycle Power. No, that's awesome. Now, yeah. let's talk about the conference a little bit. This is the first day, first year conference. Did you guys get a chance to sit in on some stuff? Absolutely. It was great. Yeah, it was, was a it very good? good conference. Yeah. yeah. I would highly recommend it. If you have anyone listening that is looking to know more about what's going on in the industry, I think some of the speakers you've had today have been great. Some good conversations about some of the key aspects. There's been a lot of discussion about ESG. Okay? Right, yep. And one of the things that I think is, as we mentioned, we're technology agnostic in terms of turbines. 
we run some GE units, we run some Mitsubishis, we run some solar units. And all of these vendors that we use, they also, for the most part, they operate with Recips as well. Right. And the conversation around ESG has been somewhat lacking in the turbine side. But I have worked both. I spent 15 years operating and selling Recips. And one of the reasons I was drawn to turbines is because from the regulated emissions side, you can be as low as a third of the emissions of a recip straight from the stack. Wow. So with that in mind, I mean, when you're trying to stay beneath a certain tonnage of regulated emissions, it can be a huge advantage for ESG. And I don't think that that story has been fully told. Yeah, to elaborate on that, what I've noticed a lot is you know, people that are, they're advocates for reciprocating engines. I've seen charts and data and they use one turbine, one make, model, one size, and then they want to show that chart to service companies and operators of what their emissions and methane slip is going to look like. And I'm like, you know, there's more than that make, model, and size. And how are you presenting that data to folks? It really doesn't paint a full, broad picture. So I think that's going to be, Jeff and my you know, our mission moving forward is because there's really a disconnect between what's being put out there and what's true and what's, you know, right. what might be true, but it's really not an accurate yeah. picture. No, no, th- this is a problem. And this is why yeah. a conference like this, where you can get some good presentations on data yeah. and things, because there is a lot of conflicting data out there, mm-hmm. right? And as a company who might be wanting to electrify their operations in the oil field, it's hard to just kind of sort the wheat from the chaff right now, right? So Mm -hmm. you got to talk to people, you got to figure it out. And because, I mean, it's not just fly-by-night guys who are saying one thing and somebody else saying another thing. These are established companies, right? So you got to be able to sort it out. But that's why they're going to end up talking to you guys at some point for sure. (laughs) We're ready. We're excited. Well, Jeff. Thank you very much for your time, Jeff. Noel, it was great having you on. You as well. Thanks. All right, folks, we're here with Omar Arquides, who is the Utility Consulting Manager at 1898. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, and oh, Shane, hey. super co-host with us about, here today. I don't know about all that, but yeah, <laughs> sponsored by Joliet Electric Motors. So. Exactly, exactly. So it's interesting because, you know, I mean, this is now the morning of the second day of this show. But before we get into the show a little bit, Omar, tell us about, you know, what is 1898? Because I don't think a lot of people know, yeah, right? I yep. mean, yeah, no, I think we have an opportunity to get some awareness out there. So 1898 is kind of a throwback to Burns McDonald's founding in 1898. We've been around a long, long time and we focus on kind of strategic partnerships, uh, kind of long-term success of our clients. Honestly, we've been doing consulting in the engineering construction phase of our business for a very long time. And we've kind of just formalized it, really. So 1898 Co. is the Branded division, Pure Consulting, Burns McDonald. Nice. nice. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. So, and in this space, because Burns McDonald is massive, right? And Absolutely. when we've talked about that before, that, I mean, you guys are involved in electrification, a lot of things, but electrification, even outside of oil and gas into other areas. But is the oil and gas industry, the electrification of our industry, is that an important thing for you guys? For Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so Burns McDonald, over 10,000 employee owners in our organization. We have a lot of divisions that focus on oil, gas, and chemicals, on wastewater disposal, transmission distribution, a lot of utility clients, and and the whole gamut, uh, federal and the whole set. So we got into this really from our clients asking, hey, we need a solution that looks long-term because we're going to build a lot of assets and an electrical system 
that we're not used to running and doing. So they knew we had that expertise. We're number one in transmission distribution across the nation, number one in power right. generation. So they knew that the expertise and, you know, that cross-pollination with our oil, gas, and chemical division really made it a sweet spot for us to support this kind of emerging market. Excellent. Excellent. And also, now you're here at this show. This is the first edition of the Oil Field Electrification Technology Show Conference. Why is it important for Burns and Mac to be at something like this? I mean, you guys are a big supporter and it's the first one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Part of our Mac culture principles are to be bold in the space, right? So we're excited to be part of the first Oil Field Electrification Technology Conference because we feel like it needs kind of a switch. Oil field electrification is not new, as you know. Really what's new is the size, the grandeur, and the ability to build in flexibility through a market that goes up and down. And so we're excited to be on that cusp to bring a lot of seemingly disparate connections together, whether it be on-site power generation, wind, solar, renewables, you know, helping out the industry, you know, figure out how to reduce their emissions and do it the right way. Yeah, it's important, you know, to get start getting that message out. And, you know, I've been talking with a lot of people, but I think the best analogy is is this whole movement in our industry is kind of in the first inning right Absolutely. now, right? Yep. And so a lot of people, Shane is my favorite NDA dub person, right? Whenever I ask him about what deals are going on, he's like, man, I can't tell you. And, you know, same with you, Omar. <laughs> yeah. Omar's my, Omar's oh, my second sure. favorite. He's, he's got a lot of them. And he's like, sorry, Jim, you know, whatever. We can't yeah. talk about it. But, you know, we anticipate a lot of those projects becoming more public early next year. And so hopefully then we will be able to talk about it, right? I mean, then, yeah. they'll, then they'll open up and talk about them. Shane, what yes, about, sir. when are we going to be able to win any, those? Any day now. Any, day, any now. day now. Hopefully Q1, Q2 next year, we'll be able to talk a little bit more vocally and publicly about what's been going on behind the scenes. And while I was sitting here listening to Omar, I was thinking in our space, you know, my focus has been on EFRAC. So mm-hmm. my yeah. easy part is taking the motor and using the motor and displacing the diesel engine. But when it comes to power, saw an interesting slide yesterday with Ring Advisors, and they're saying that by 2030, there's going to be 200 electric frack spreads. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take that number and quantify that out with the amount of power needed per spread, that's about six gigawatts worth of power. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have an idea or like maybe a budgetary number or a spitball number, like how much power we're going to need to bring online to support electrification of the oil field? Yeah, honestly, I'd probably say that's uh, about five times what you just said there because wow yeah what you're annotating there is really the frack fleet right but what about compression right uh, what about downwell esp driving you know so when you start adding these these assets on you're talking about small utilities that we're building out there in a private scenario right which is where you know we really are excited to play a space because we have a long you know existing relationship with utilities and we know their business we know how to make yeah. that work and and help folks to you know put strategic plans together for five ten year twenty year success which is a little bit different also for this space, sure. right? We're having to start start to think for this industry long-term. I got a 30-year asset. How do I make sure I have the appropriate asset management, the systems in place, the organization stood up? Because it's not just about getting the asset out there. So right. yeah, and then, you know, we're really working with the PUC, working with ERCOT and other folks to, you know, incentivize generation, both from the green content related stuff and mm-hmm. our, you know, tried and true natural grass foundation. It's going to be important because you multiply that number you said, now you're talking about 30 gigawatts. Right now, the ERCOT peak is somewhere in the 88 gigawatts, right? 
Wow. So, so you're, you're almost, you're <laughs> almost talking almost about half, yeah. yeah, exactly. 50%. And you know, that's not adding in the other things going on, Bitcoin mining or EV, you know, EV, EV penetration. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of work in the space and really we got to think about it as an integrated solution, not yeah. just this industry, but the electrical industry uh, suppliers and a lot of those other spaces and, and continue to have conferences like this, bring those together to look at solutions before you know, the challenges come up and they're insurmountable. Do you think supply chain can keep up with demand, you know, on the trajectory? I mean, 2030 sounds like it, maybe it's far away, but it's really not that far away. <laughs> I mean, you got people, are, CapEx budgets were already in the end of 23, you know, 24, people are starting to talk about 24. And then mm-hmm. if you think about that, we're halfway to 2030, bringing on, you know, 180 more electric fracks. And then, yeah. you know, with the, all the other stuff that you're working on downstream and, and with production, can supply chain hold up? And, you know, meet that demand at, at that trajectory or? Yeah, and that's a great question. And that's a question that's going in all sectors, right. right? You know, I'm a positive person. I believe in the American spirit. I believe in our industry. And we have the right folks, you know, thinking about those issues, those mm-hmm. problems. It's going to take, you know, uh, educating our labor force, building the pipeline in that space. It's going to take regulatory support, you know, freeing up, in, you know, the appropriate areas to kind of put those together. But when you're talking about 2030, I, I think, you know, Good old American spirit can figure that out within that time frame. I got, I got faith. Yeah, I'll go ahead and throw out an amen on that one, too. <laughs> it's true. Not even Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, Omar, thanks for dropping yeah, by and being yeah. on the show. Appreciate okay, it. Okay, appreciate it. Thanks hey, so much, you It's very nice to meet you. Pleasure. Yeah, yeah thanks so much. Care. Bye. All right. We're here with Blair McDougal from Waterford Energy Services. Blair, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, nice to be here. Yeah, no, it was excellent. We had a chance to chat earlier, but you also gave a presentation today at the show, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, gave a presentation earlier this afternoon. The topic was offshore electrification using floating wind. That's a project that we recently completed, about a year long in duration. And actually, for your listeners, the report is available. We have a public version. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, so I can share the, you know, where they can go Yeah, yeah. Give me the link and I'll put it in the show notes Absolutely. So, so that people can see this. Now, this yeah. is Waterford, that's a Canadian company, right? Well, we're based, we're a Canadian company. However, we've got offices globally. We have an American entity based in, we have an office in the Woodlands. We have a Mexican entity. Oh, wow. And we do, yeah, work in that country. We're doing work in the Mediterranean. So we actually have an office in Tel Aviv in Israel. So we're definitely, you know, based out of Canada, but we have global operations. So in been 20 years now in existence. We started in 2003, January, and January coming up will be 20 years. So it's a big milestone. Wow, wow. Yeah. But I'm really curious about this because tangentially, I didn't tell you this before, but I know some guys who were involved with a conference on floating wind, floating wind solutions conference. Yep. A little plug. To I, went, I went to that last year. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so... One of the things that struck me when I was at that conference was how a lot of those projects were very far in the future, right? When I was talking to guys, you know, there was, oh, yeah, this will be commercialized in five years, 10 years, something like that. But this project you're talking about is done. Well, it's done, but it was a desktop study. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. so it was purely a desktop study, conceptual, and then the output from that study then is, you know, our clients and customers are going to take that information and then they're going to decide, all right, where are we going to spend our money? Are we going to make this a reality? Right. Are we going to put steel in the water and, you know, put floating wind in the water, for example, we're going to actually go ahead and electrify our platforms and things like that. Right. So that is definitely off into the future. And I'm hopeful. I mean, it's already happening in the industry globally. Now in the U S and Canada and North America, I'm hopeful. I'm thinking within the next five years, 
there's got to be some offshore wind electrification of some oil and gas assets somewhere. It's got yeah, to- yeah, because it seems like the projects that we're seeing here, you know, the projects in the northeast and stuff like that, there's you know definitely wind offshore wind but it's not floating that's right? right not floating and i think all of those are generating to bring back to shore right i mean that's what those are there yeah for electrification of offshore platforms or anything so like that, that so that's called you know a grid yeah. connection grid project in other words yeah so they're generating electricity they have a ppa a power purchase agreement with the utility mm-hmm. goes into the grid and then you know consumers on land pay for the electricity and, and its use what we're talking about in an oil and gas context is it's what's called microgrid. Right. So, right, it's sort of a closed system. Self-contained, micro- right? Self-contained, not going to the public at all. It's powering an offshore oil and gas asset. could be powering a steel plant somewhere. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of right. different use cases. Yeah. No, no, no. That's fascinating. But, I mean, also the one of the things in the desktop state would be very interesting. So... Be sure and check the show note link if you guys want to see that. But the scale of this offshore floating wind stuff, for me, that's what blew me away, right? Because I'm used to seeing, you know, like onshore wind farms and stuff like that. And they were like, no, 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 man, this is much bigger. You know, these turbines, these towers, these, I don't know, what do you call them? What's the base of them? They're not a vessel. It's a floating platform. Floating platform, yeah. Yeah. Some of those were immense. Yeah. I was talking at that same show, somebody had a diagram, but they didn't have any scale around it, right? Yeah. And I was like, how big is that? It was like a square platform, right, with a hollow thing in the middle. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, that's big enough that you could take NRG Stadium, which is our big football stadium, yeah. and stick that in the middle of that square. Yes, you could. And yeah. I was like, holy cow. Yeah. You know, because it's one of the things in the feasibility studies is like, you know, where do you get that much steel or what are you going to build that out of? I mean, you know, yeah. steel is not, uh, not it's cheap. A very, yeah, that's a very expensive. So there's two basic construction materials and the economics of each, it kind of meanders with time. So you could have more or less a fully concrete solution or you could have a, a fully steel solution. Right. Right. So depending on where you are in the world, the cost of steel, for example, or the timing of your project, the local infrastructure, it may me- make more sense to... Just pour, you know, have slip forms and pour concrete. Right, yeah. And have it more or less a full concrete floating platform. There are companies out there that are doing that now, but it could be steel as well. It just depends on the economics and sort of a cost analysis that has to be done at that time. And so when you do the study, is it just a feasibility study on the design or is it on the capacity? I mean, what did your study entail? I mean, do you give them that option? Like, is it like, look, if you do it with concrete, it'll cost you this. If you do it with steel, it'll cost you this. Yeah, it's pretty broad because, you know, you're taking a really, really high level view of the world when you're doing these conceptual studies. So we look at, first of all, a wind resource assessment. So where in the world are you and what's the wind resource? All right, yeah. Is it high winds, low winds? Is it steady? Is it very variable? All those kind of things. That's really the building block, the foundation of the economic viability of a project like that. If you have low winds, it doesn't make any sense. Right, exactly. Right? Which is the reason why it's kind of a challenge in Gulf Mexico where you have, you have extremes. <laughs> right. You have, you know, severe storms at certain times of the year, but the rest of the year. Relatively calm. Yeah. Relatively calm. So, you know, the economics of a, a Gulf Mexico-based offshore wind or floating wind project, it needs a lot of work. Right. Right. Not saying it's not viable, but it needs a close looking at where we are. 
in sort of the more northern latitudes, North Atlantic, or, you know, you look at the North Sea or regions like that, the wind resource is off the charts. And that means, and okay, we've got a viable project here. Let's look at the details. Let's look at where do you construct it? What's the port infrastructure? Can the port infrastructure in that region support building these, right. you know, these types of structures at scale? And then you look at, you know, things like mooring systems. You look at cable power systems. So, are, you know, can the cables withstand the dynamic loads that will be imparted in it, and you know, wherever your project is because the floating structure is moving? Right, exactly. So you've got fatigue, you know, loads and things like that to consider. And then you've got battery, you know. Right, the battery stuff is important. Yeah. Batteries are very important because, and that, that was, you know, that's a topic that was heavily, you know, I thought it addressed really well in, during the conference here. So far, if you're generating power, but there's not a demand for it, you don't want to waste the power. So right, exactly. So you, have, so you have to store it. And then on the flip side, if for some reason you lose wind power, the battery storage systems allow an opportunity to allow you to transfer to more conventional power generation. So, if, you know, right. your, your gas turbine. So, you know, roughly speaking, you know, rule of thumb, you need a half an hour of battery storage in case you have a, a you know, your, your wind farm goes at a commission for some reason. Right. You're going to need about a half an hour of battery storage and power to keep things running and moving until you get your gas turbine started up again. Nice. Right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I'm sorry I didn't get to see your presentation because I must have been in another one or off somewhere else. But yeah. thanks so much for coming by and being on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure being here. And yeah, I've really enjoyed the conference so far. It's been great. Great. Hopefully we'll see you again next year. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. Take a look at today's show notes for links we mentioned in the podcast. We enjoy your feedback, so if you have any questions or comments, email them to deepdive at worldoil.com. Check out worldoil.com for the best oil and gas industry technical articles and news. And join us next time for another Deep Dive with World Oil.